Isn't it a privilege to be able to worship together today? I fear we would take it for granted if we didn't stop to uh, recognize that. And I've been really enjoying my experience with you so far. I uh, hope and expect that won't change in the next few minutes. The light just came on. (laughs) As... uh, We accept preaching as an acceptable form of worship as well. We want to do it all in the name of Christ. Over the next few weeks, I want to introduce the Friends Church. I want to talk about uh, who we are and where we've come from and where we've been. By God's grace, perhaps even where we're going. What we believe in, what we stand for. Let me uh, get an idea and give you a visual idea of meeting the friends who are around you, uh, the people who are sitting next to you, literally. How many here would be willing to uh, somehow indicate, perhaps raise your hand so we can see you, uh, have been a part of a friend's church, this one or another one, for one year or less? How many of you have been a part of a friend's? Real high. Be proud of that. We're really glad you're here. We're welcome. We welcome you here. We're really glad you're here. How many of you, and, and this will involve the same crowd, um, But how many of you have been a part of a friend's church for three years or less? How many in this room? Go ahead and look around. That's the idea. Keep your hand up there. Come on. Go ahead and take a look. Now, on the other side of things, that give you a little visual idea. Now, on the other side of things, visually, uh, how many of you were born into the friend's church? Hands really high. Wow. That's a bigger number. Am I right? Even the born ones versus the three years. And then how many of you have been a part of a friend's church for 20 years or more? Look at that. This is a huge number. What statistically is that? Keep your hands up. What is that? Is that like 50%? Is that correct? Okay, let's try this. Hands up of 20 years or more? Down. Hands up of 20 year, 19 years or less? I'm going to say 55. Oh, okay, 50%. <laughs> that doesn't count if you're... How many of you are under 20? <laughs> Okay, I get it. Oh, you're like, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. If you will, uh, and and by the way, how many of you have long, long, long generations in your family of Quakers? I know there are some. For how many is that more than like three generations? Four, five. Wow. How many, Floyd? Do you know? Yeah, <laughs> and, you're, and you're over 20, right? Okay, good, okay, good. Ever since he can remember, that's good. That's very helpful. Now, I, I appreciate that, at least three or four generations. I appreciate that because um, I, I want you to kind of make note of that because anything that I say is really um, from one perspective, one person's journey, if you will, in the Friends Church, but there are many journeys represented in this room And a lot of folks who have uh, some experiences outside of this yearly meeting and outside of Meridian Friends Church, certainly, and uh, there's there's quite a diversity here as well. If you will, from my experience, there's there's at least three conversions uh, that a person goes through that I've observed in the Friends Church. And, And one is sort of this conversion to decide, am I convinced that I like the people around me and I kind of want to stay with them? I I went through this when I visited a church uh, for the first time. I wouldn't have stuck with the Friends Church if I didn't like the people I encountered there. Is that fair to say? And I'm guessing that most all of you 
have sort of been convinced in this area. There's been a conversion there from I'm not sure to, okay, these are pretty good people and I trust them and I'm going to hang around with them. Um, That's one statement that a person makes as they sort of walk into a church environment, is they make a decision about the people that they know and the way they see them living their lives and so forth. Is that fair to say? There's a second conversion that we hope for, and that is a conversion to faith itself, to faith in Jesus Christ, that we're not just here to to bring people to ourselves and hope that you like us, but we're here to introduce you to the one uh, whom this church is all about, and that's Jesus Christ. And and so many people come already having known Christ uh, before they ever set foot in a friend's church. We understand that. But this is, this is an important conversion as well, is that the focus is given over to Jesus and, and not to ourselves. How many in this room found Christ, a saving knowledge and decision for Christ, within the ministry of the Friends Church? And I'm one of those people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> that is great. That is a lot of people. Um, there's a third conversion, if you will. And I think of this as a conversion or a convincing of becoming a friend with regard to doctrine and values. And this is different than just saying that I believe in Christ and I'm a follower of Christ. Um, Friends refer to this as a convinced Quaker or a convinced friend. This is almost a separate issue. And sometimes these layers of decisions create conflict within churches. You probably wouldn't expect that there would ever be conflicts in a friend's church, right? This is a big shock. I know, but this whole message series is about just laying this out on the table. I want you to see who we are. (laughs) No, please. (laughs) The lights are now off. (laughs) So there's there's a third layer, if you will. There's a third. By the way, that's better. I don't don't know what those other lights were. (laughs) That's really better. Thank you. It's probably better for you, too. I look really good in the dark. (laughs) I have the perfect face for radio. You'll get that later. Is that better? Thank you. I appreciate that. You could laugh too. <laughs> There's the, I'm just so far off. This is so helpful. <laughs> There's a third layer of convincing or conversion, and, and it has to do, you know, when you are adopted into a family, and I know this was my experience, so I'm speaking from my experience here. When, when you're born into a family or adopted into a family, and in the case of a church, probably adopted for most of us, um, you not only get to enjoy the uh, present relationships of the people that you can see and know and get to know their experiences and their lifestyle, and that, that's very important in a church, but you also, also what comes with that is a family history. There are family stories. There are family values that precede you, especially when you walk into a church as old as this one. And I remember for me, I came to Christ at, at the age of 17, and it happened to be through the ministry of a friend's church. The only reason that I came to church, uh, I mean, at least the initial reason, I, by faith I believe God brought me there, and I thank him for that, was, was through a volleyball tournament and through a Mexico mission outreach. And as a kid, I always complained, I never got to go anywhere. We don't ever go camping. We don't go do anything and so this church was inviting us to go to Portland, Oregon to play volleyball. And <clears throat> there were hydro tubes at this place that we were going to go to and all this neat stuff. And I know these are really spiritual reasons to go to church. 
And then they were going to go to Mexico. Would you believe that I helped translate uh, for a mission team before I was a believer? I was helping to uh, offer some Spanish words. They were really desperate for a translator. (laughs) Um, Before I had faith in Christ. And, And that's how included and loved I felt by this group of people who were willing to take me in and, and uh, bring me in from the outside. didn't matter that my clothes smelled like smoke, none of that stuff. I was accepted into this group of people. And so this conversion, if you will, the first one to me was, was getting to know these people. The next one, which is the most important one, was this conversion to Christ himself and to realize what these people stood for and, and what they were all about and the integrity and the goodness in their life. I knew they had something that I needed and not that I wanted, they were shining the light of Christ for me and allowed me the, the environment and the opportunity to respond to that. I, I could recognize that. And then uh, I went away to college at the encouragement of our youth leaders who were there at Talent Friends Church in Southern Oregon, and I ended up going to George Fox College, which is now a university. You and I are owners of, or stewards properly, of, of that campus. Did you know that? That's a pretty big deal. Uh, That's a friend's university. Uh, I went there and then discovered some of this history. I I didn't learn about friend's history in a local church setting. Um, And I I don't know how common or uncommon that is, but in my conversation with other pastors and churches, Meridian Friends is doing a pretty exceptional job in the last two years of offering friend's history and making that available and and doctrine-wise. And a lot of that is thanks to the Lord for an incredible resident scholar that he's placed in our midst. And I won't embarrass Rod Ferris by mentioning him by name. (laughs) We're exceptionally thankful. And I realize that most of you have not had the chance uh, or have not taken the chance or you're teaching or whatever uh, to uh, sit under his teaching. And and I sure encourage you to uh, seek him out and encourage him in that way. Uh, So thanks, Rod. You're a blessing. Now, there are many others who can teach friends history and so forth, but just the last couple of years, it's been a real a gift to us. But I learned it uh, by going away uh, to George Fox College and, and learning, and, and it was there that I came to a very deep love and a sense of calling to who friends are, not just the people that I had met in, in a local church, but for a group of people that have been around for a very long time not just because of the people I knew, but because of our heritage and because of our focus as friends on the right thing. So I stand before you, you who are birthright Quakers. Uh, I I fell in love uh, with Christ and and the church and the Friends Church 23 years ago. And so that's more than half my life. Uh, It's all that I know as far as the church goes. So the Lord never led me to to look elsewhere. But I want to stand before you uh, who are birthright Quakers and fifth generations and, and uh, people who've been in the church for more than 23 years at least, and say, thank you. And God has really enriched my life and blessed my life because of your commitment, because of your giving, because of your service to the Lord in this corner of God's church who call themselves friends. And so uh, I'm just grateful for you. I'm eager to share with you my great love uh, for, for the Friends Church. And let me, let me clear a few things up, because I can assume nothing as far as what we all understand or know. To avoid confusion, Friends and Quakers are synonymous terms. Uh, they can be used interchangeably. The Friends movement began around 
1650. So this is not something that started in the 1960s in CUNA. Did you know that? So 1650s in England. And actually, the first followers did not call themselves friends, and they did not call themselves Quakers. They started out calling themselves children of the light, with reference to Christ as the light of the world, and as publishers of truth. It wasn't until 100 years later that the name friends actually stuck. It was taken from John 15, verse 14, where Jesus said, You are my friends if you do what I command. The term Quaker is what you might call an external designation. It came as a result of uh, people outside of the movement. Actually, George Fox boldly uh, told a judge that that judge should tremble or quake before the Lord, to which the judge defensively labeled Fox and his followers Quakers because Quakers would sooner be jailed than cross their convictions. And so their quaking was for uh, a different reason there. They became well-known as people who were less fearful of human authority than God's authority. So in their first 150 years, you may not realize this, but the Friends Movement was not recognized in England as a legally acceptable religious group. Uh, Actually, I believe that's the first, well, (laughs) I know Rod's out here. So uh, the Edict of Toleration was when? 1690, 1689, George Fox's death. For several years, let me not give you a specific, for several years, uh, the Friends Church was not identified as an acceptable religious group. And as many as 13,000 Friends were put into prison uh, during this time period because of their religious conscience. It's no wonder that Friends had a very active prison ministry. (laughs) It's because that's where they were. So what I'm trying to say is this. The Friends Church is much larger than what you see in this room. In southern Idaho, we affiliate ourselves with seven other local churches. We would call those meetings, seven other Friends meetings, as well as four additional extension churches and mission points. And those are exciting. Two of those are Spanish-speaking. One of them in the valley here is a Greenleaf, one of them in Caldwell. Throughout Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, our affiliation is called the Northwest Yearly Meeting of Friends Church. To give you a numerical idea of what I'm talking about, Meridian Friends is affiliated with 77 other local and extension churches or ministries. 53 of those are full meetings. Uh, That represents about 6,400 people on a given Sunday, worshiping around the Northwest. And so we're part of a denomination that has a history of over 350 years. Most people, I think, kind of read our sign out there on the street, and they see the word friends, and they sort of think we probably named it that because we're friendly people. Am I right? <laughs> or if they're Christians, they may realize, they may think about John 15, 14, and think about Christ um, calling us friends. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Or what a friend we have in Jesus. It's not uncommon to be thinking that way in religious terms, which in some ways is not bad. I think we have a lot to live up to. Uh, I think we need to be careful about that. We at least need to understand that other people think that. We need to be Friendly. (laughs) I think that's a good thing. Are the people here friendly? Okay, good. (laughs) I I don't think that's a bad thing. (laughs) I think joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and that's a good thing. And yet, friends, I'm I'm helping you to understand, is a technical term. It, It says something very important about our identity, and it says something very important about our very long history. And that's what I want to talk about the next few weeks. So if you'll turn to John chapter 14. I'd like to read from there. In your pew Bible, it's found on page 1045. 
And today I just want to make two foundational statements about the Friends Movement. And I would, you know, I prefer to think of the Friends Church as the Friends Movement because we're not static. We're continuing to move by God's grace. We're continuing to follow. So I want to make two statements about the Friends Movement. And both of these statements come from this passage of Scripture. Would you please stand with me as we read from John 14? And and as we read it, the context is really important. Um, Jesus has just announced to his disciples that he's going to the cross. So if you will, these are part of the words that Jesus gives as a handoff between Jesus physically walking with them and showing them what the church is supposed to look like and then saying, now it's your job. Jesus is telling them, you're the ones now to go do everything that I've been doing and say everything that I've been saying. This is the handoff process. Now, in the process, these disciples are terrified. What do you mean you're leaving us? They had no idea. They expected Jesus to be this conqueror and and someone who would lead them and, and continue to be with them. But now he's saying, I'm leaving you. I'm going to the cross. That's the Father's plan. The church is in your hands. So I want you to read that with this sense of urgency. There's a sense of a need for these disciples to know what Jesus is having them to be all about. There's a sense for them to need to know about their identity now that Jesus won't be with them physically. Where does that come from? And Jesus is addressing his church here. John chapter 14, and we begin with verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So does that urgency help with that statement? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. I leave it to Thomas, the the boldest of those disciples, uh, who wasn't afraid to ask questions. Early Quakers were known for being very unafraid. He asked a good question, a question that all of them are wondering about but afraid to ask. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And this is how Jesus responds to the church that's supposed to take over, to the church that's supposed to go out and fulfill this mission of, of saving the entire planet. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, not not far behind Thomas, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believing, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name 
so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. May God give us the courage to trust him. You can be seated. I want to focus on verse 6 of what we just read. It's an extremely foundational passage that I assume most everybody here probably has memorized, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to draw two statements that I find absolutely at the heart of our Quaker faith out of these statements, and as it should be, they're also at the very heart of Christianity itself. The first statement about our foundation is simply this. Our foundation is Christ alone. Our foundation is Christ alone. Let's think about the scripture here for a few minutes and and what's really being said. You know, it's interesting to me, in the final chapters of the Gospels, especially in John, in the final chapters there, you have the disciples asking questions. And I got to tell you, these are not very flattering questions. These are not, this is not a flattering picture of these poor disciples, It shows them as bumbling, it shows them as lost, it shows them as confused. And it's always interesting to me that the scripture is so honest about that. Here you have uh, denying Peter, in John 13, 36, just preceded this. He says, Lord, where are you going? Essentially the same question that Thomas asks at the pivotal moment when Jesus is uh, uh, telling them to put their trust in him and, and very eloquently explaining, you know, Uh, I'm preparing a way for you. Don't worry. And he says, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Uh, That's doubting Thomas, by the way. And so we see his question in chapter 14, verse 5. And then we see Philip in verse 8 of chapter 14. He gives the granddaddy comment of them all. He says, Lord, show us the Father. Well, that'd be good enough for us. (laughs) And and it it just reminds me of our human nature. Aren't we that way? We just kind of want God to show us everything. We want God to make it easy for us. We don't want to have to trust. Jesus already told them what they need to do. He says, you need to trust me for your future. And they want to say, but, but where's the guidebook? I mean, where's the map? What am I going to do when this happens? We don't even know where you're going. And their faith is simply not there. These disciples of the church don't understand by this point in Jesus' ministry They still don't understand what Jesus is all about. These disciples still don't realize what he's come to do. I love that Jesus doesn't give up on them. He patiently explains what they need to hear. And I believe that Jesus still hasn't given up on the church today, 2,000 years later. I still picture Jesus very gently instructing them. Now, Jesus in his sinlessness, as Philip offers this huge question, after all this preaching and miracles and, and three years worth of following, and Peter says, just show us the Father. I, I wonder if Jesus in his sinlessness would have permission to roll his eyes. <laughs> wow, you guys really don't get it. This is the great insight of friends and our contribution to the church at large, that we truly have no need for intermediaries between us and God. No need for formalism, no need for ceremonies, no need for creeds, no no need for priests. Listen to Jesus' answer of what the church is to do from here. Trust me. 
Listen to Jesus' answer when it comes to handing off all the responsibility of what the church is to be about. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am everything that you need. Everything. Our message as a church is very simple, and it's this. It's that Christ has come to lead people himself. The single focus and the single leader of the church is Jesus. That is our singular foundation, and I would say achievement, with regard to communicating to the church at large. As a friend's church is this statement, is that Christ has come to lead people himself. A quote from George Fox, he said this in 1648. Oh, now you got the second one is this, and when all my hopes in them, referring to the clergy, and in all men were gone, by the way, George Fox is recognized as the founder of the Friends Movement. Um, His conversion came in 1648. His his, uh, vision for rallying people um, uh, in terms of gathering a church is 1652. So that's really sort of the birthday of the Friends Church. He had this insight in 1648 upon his conversion He says, when all my hopes in them, the clergy and all men were gone. And that's a reference to this whole searching process that this young man had gone through. He was raised in the Anglican church, which was really kind of the roots of the Presbyterian church in England. Uh, No knock there because uh, things were much, much different when church and state were merged, all kinds of abuses. You had to go to priests uh, for certain things. When you paid your taxes, you were tithing. All kinds of things that were corrupt and wrong in the church. George Fox went to the priests, and he had this restlessness inside of him. He had this hunger, this spiritual hunger. You know what the priests advised him to do? Because he had all kinds of pesky questions. Why, why are things done this way? And, and you can read his journal and, and, and see what, what he's all about there. But he goes to them, and the advice that they give him is incredible. The advice that they give to Fox, as young man is, to try tobacco, to try laxatives, alcohol, or marriage. I'm not kidding. You can read that in his journal. This is the kind of advice that he got from the spiritual know-it-alls. And so this guy was really, really disillusioned with the whole idea of religion and church. Well, go figure. He hadn't made a conversion to the people, right? Fox sort of skipped that. He made his conversion to Christ directly. And when all my hopes in them, the clergy, and all men were gone that I had nothing outwardly to help me, nor could I tell what to do. Then, oh, then, I heard a voice which said, There is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to thy condition. And when I heard it, my heart did leap for joy. How many of you have had that kind of experience? I mean, I have. I have. When I knew that Jesus was real, when I knew that he was addressing me personally and intimately, and it wasn't just somebody else's faith, but it was mine. And I knew that I was, would never, ever again be alone. That's, that's, a, that's a joy-leaping experience in your heart. I think this is a really important contribution for the Friends Church because have you ever thought about what the church would be without Jesus? you ever been concerned for the condition of the church 
when you only put your eyes on frail people, when you only look around at the stuff that you can see and therefore measure, when you look at human leaders and when you look at human followers, it's really depressing. I want to read a memo to you. I love this memo. It's cute. Uh, it's, it's addressed to Jesus, son of Joseph, company's name, the Woodcrafters Carpentry Shop, Nazareth, and it's from the Jordan Management Consultants in Jerusalem. And the subject of the memo, management report. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we've not only run the results through our computers, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational consultant. You ever thought about what the church would be without Jesus? It's the opinion of the staff that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. We have summarized the findings of our study below. Simon Peter is emotional, unstable, and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no quality of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. They do not have the team concept. We believe it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings. Additionally, they both registered high scores on the manic depressive scale. (laughs) However, one of the candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness.